but I want to get this hooked into the system. Testing. Testing, testing, testing. Okay. Oh, let's see.
if you want to look at your bulletin, just a couple of things. Offerings in the offering box, of course, Andrea's number, and make use of days of praise and acts and facts. Also, this was handed to me. This is um, the water source that we get our water from. It's up in Lapeer, our, our drinking water here. And uh, been using them. They're reasonable and good people, so they are on 21. I'm trying to read where they're at, and I'm, I'm not seeing it. Right across from Walmart. So no, they're not. Don't go there. Take that off the internet. Oh, Genesee, 401 West Genesee. Okay. So if you have need, that is the cheapest gig in town for sure. So thanks for that. And then also, um, there's going to be some sort of a basket um, down in the fellowship hall, and that's for uh, donations to fund the dinners. So if you want to kick in a little bit on that, it would be appreciated. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, the, the main dish. Great. Okay. All right. Anything else I've missed this morning? Overlooked. Our scripture reading this morning is a responsive reading, and that is um, 833 in Trinity, Psalm 132. Let's stand together as we read Psalm 132. O oh Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. He swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids. We heard it in Ephrath, we came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with righteousness, may your saints sing to joy. For the sake of David your servant, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, and their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling. I will bless her with abundant provisions. 
her poor will I satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David, and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, and the crown on his head will be resplendent. We ask that the Lord would bless his word. Amen. George, would you open for us in prayer? your red hymnal this morning, the Trinity, and turn to number 478, 478 in the red.
can't see it, but I'm smiling. Any favorite hymns this morning? Doc's pointing at, who are you pointing at, Doc? Ed? No, you, no, you. Say, say it one more time. 481 in the red. <laughs> I think you're correct. 481. Just a spur of the moment decision, or do you have a reason for this one? Awesome. Sounds good. <laughs> Oh, 
Turn with me in your Bible to 1 Timothy. We'll be reading from the first chapter, verses 12 through 17. 1846 in the Pew Bible. First Timothy 1, 12 through 17. Stand with me as we read. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, anointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who, have, who believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. I ask that the Lord would bless his word. Please be seated. Last um, this past weekend, um, some of our youth were able to go to the the winter retreat. Uh, Hannah's looking at me like, "What?" Sorry, Hannah. You reminded me this morning, though. So um, uh, we're going to ask some of them to come up here, even though a couple are missing, uh, and just give us a quick report on their weekend and how it went. And I know some of them brought notes, and at least one of mine did. What's that? Yeah, some are ill prepared, and we're sorry. I'm going to give them just a minute because they, they didn't know that they were speaking. and I didn't know either, so you're going to listen to me first. Um, we had eight. I think there were eight of us from our church that were down there. Um, and the, for the first time in many years, it was held in Ohio at a new facility, uh, Camp Palmer. And we had new leadership. Um, Giles is the new camp director out of Sovereign Grace Church in Swartz Creek. And two of the men from Pastor Schinkel's church stepped forward and helped plan this winter blast as well. Um, and they did an excellent job. Um, it was very, very smooth and organized. And um, the topic was on leadership. And I think there were about 50 of us there total. 
Um, and we didn't have winter weather this year in Ohio that weekend. Come on up, Connor. Um, so for the first, uh, it, this happens sometimes for winter blast that there's no like winter activities. So there wasn't any sledding, ice skating and stuff like that. So we did a lot of indoor activities and Mr. Borton, who is one of the planners this year is familiar with doing indoor activities. He runs them for 4-H camp down south all the time. So the kids had a blast. It was great. We had this big, huge barn that was open and we ran a lot of activities in there and then there was rec time in the hall when we weren't in Bible study and we did Bible study twice a day every day and then an application session after the hour of Bible study there would be an application that went along with the lesson and three square meals a day we ate super super well Mrs. Borton fed us and she did an amazing job with her daughter Hannah Mae who carried the bulk of the load there so very grateful for all these people for serving our youth and very grateful for the time that they had with each other and with the Lord. Um, so this winter blast was the first winter blast that we did not have uh, Mrs. Clayton to help lead music. So Joe Kiger and I led music together. Um, it didn't go as smoothly as we would like because we did not have our pianist. Um, so a lot of our songs were a cappella, but let me tell you that singing it like that with no music and the campers there were really talented musicians. It was just amazing, especially because I had asked, like um, she just said, we had this rec center that was basically a big barn and it had great acoustics. And so on Saturday night, I decided that I wanted to take all of the campers out and stand in a big circle and just sing worship music. And it was probably one of the most amazing experiences that I have ever gotten to have. And I had a counselor come up and tell me that a kid, that a kid told him that that was the best thing that has ever happened to him, was that specific thing that we did in the um, music. So um, like she was saying, our theme this weekend was leadership. I have a lot of notes, so sorry. Um, yeah, I'm going to sum up. <laughs> so in the mornings, we would have Giles speak. And um, then at night, we would have Mr. Bill Kiger speak. Um, OK, sorry. <laughs> so <clears throat> it was about Christian leadership. What makes us a Christian? A Christian leader is not just one who talks like a Christian one who looks like a Christian, or one who acts like a Christian. There are even people who want to be a Christian, but that does not make them a Christian. <clears throat> These people try to be religious people when they're not religious at all. And um, so basically, this weekend was about how to detect people, I guess, who aren't actual Christians and how to help them and how to be a leader in your community. Um, that's basically it. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Hannah, for taking everything. I'm just kidding. Um, no, but like Hannah said today, uh, this year's worship um, from Winter Blast was about Christian leadership. And like Hannah said, it wasn't, um, being a true Christian doesn't mean you look or act or even like ha even like think like one. But I think what kind of got me this year 
was that um, our pastor, I forget if it was Mr. Kiger that said this or Giles, but he told us a story about a woman at his church that really wanted to be a um, Sunday school teacher. She wanted to teach little boys and girls about Christ, but he said the big problem with that is she just thought the Bible was full of just stories. It was fake, and um, and he says, like, how do you, like, he says, how do you deal with something like that? It was really hard to tell her that, um, like, she wasn't qualified. Like, she has a long journey to go before she can teach anybody about Christ, and I think that was very like, especially to me, I grew up with such a amazing Sunday school teacher, and she was probably one of the best Sunday school teachers I ever had. And um, to think that some boys and girls at other church could have Sunday school teachers that know absolutely nothing about Christ just really got me. And this year at camp, learning about Christian leadership really inspired me. It it was just a really good year at camp. That's all I pretty much have to say. Thank you for listening. Um, I was not prepared for today, so um, I'm just going to sum up some stuff. Um, we, again, learned about um, Christian leadership, but to learn about the Christian leadership, we had to define what a Christian was, but we also had to define what a Christian wasn't. And then we... Um, we looked at examples of uh, Christian leaders in our own church, our own lives, and um, Christian leaders in general. And then we uh, were <laughs> then we talked about um, a Christian's faith, um, how it has to be uh, stable and immovable. Um, <laughs> um, all in all, it was uh, really good this winter blast. Um, I enjoyed hanging out with my friends and talking about Christ and just having those deep conversations that I normally um, wouldn't have with my friends from school. And and all in all, it was <laughs> really good. Um, hi. I wasn't ready for this, so... I'm just going to say one of the things that um, I kind of really was thinking about once I left. Um, so the speakers were Mr. Kiger and Mr. Giles this year, and um, we were talking about leadership, and um, one of the things that I was really thinking about was that um, they were talking about how um, to be a good leader you have to be a good servant too and um, not just be thinking about um, how being in a leadership position can make you look good or um, whatever but to be a good servant and to be serving other people um, ultimately for God because um, you love God and that's what God wants you to do and um, I just think that's really important and it seems kind of like a paradox to be 
serving and leading at the same time, but um, one of the things, I can't remember who said it, but one of them said, everybody will be leading somebody and everybody will be following somebody, um, but we're all, um, we should all try and serve other people the best we can and also help lead them to Christ. Um, camp was a lot of fun this year, and um, I always like going to camp and seeing all our friends from camp, and um, it was a really nice time. So, Thanks, guys. Sorry for putting you on the spot, um, sort of. Um, <laughs> will you stand up with me and take your um, red hymnal again and turn to number 479, 479. And when you find it, stand with me. See you. 
start again. Need one of those hydraulic <laughs> tables that goes <laughs> where I just sit down, the table comes up. You know. Okay, our text this morning is First Timothy one. We are working our way through a series on the passion of Christ, and we have considered some very important topics thus far. Why did Jesus come? We dealt with the preexistence of Christ as creator and Lord and his mission. Who was Jesus? What people said about him, what he said about himself, the miracles which confirmed his deity. Then we ask the question, what's the cross all about? We looked at some texts. The Lamb of God was slain from the creation of the world, which means that God ordained him and the cross as a provision for sin. We ask the question on another, in another sermon, for whom did Jesus die? And the answer was not the whole world, but for people given to him by the Father, none of whom shall be lost. That's an important truth. Those for whom Christ died, they're all going to be in heaven. So we asked the question last week, how can we know that we are one of those for whom Christ died? That you are, to put it, in another vernacular, one of the Christ's sheep that he intends to bring into his fold. We ask the question, can a person really know such things? Or must we content ourselves that such things do not concern us? We're just going to have to leave it to fate. Now, you know, there are many people who swing the pendulum in their thinking from... I must be all I can be to please God and save myself. That's one group. And then there is the other end of the pendulum. I cannot do anything to influence God, so why should I try? That's the way they swing, back and forth. Let me tell you that the truth does not lie in either of these extremes. The gospel does not tell any of us to be good or to do good things in order to be saved. There's not enough goodness in you. There's not enough goodness in me to approve the righteousness of God. Jesus said it best 
when he said to the rich lawyer, there's none good but God. Wow, that's a shocker for a lot of people. Luke 18, verse 19, there is none good but God. So this is the first wrong extreme, thinking that salvation is a reward for being good. If you're not good, if I'm not good, then how could it be a reward for that? The second wrong extreme is this. I'm so rotten as a sinner, so corrupt in my thinking and actions, it doesn't matter how I act or what I do, I'm doomed. God will do what God will do, and I'll just have to leave it at that. Now that's another extreme. May I say that this is not the gospel either. It's fatalism. It takes the legitimate doctrine of predestination to a logical but unbiblical conclusion. May I say it this way, that human logic is not the way to find God. It just is not. Nor is it the way to figure God out. So if you're scratching your head and you say, wonder what what God is like. I know I'll read some books. As though reading the words of others or reading even the Bible in and of itself is all that one needs to do. Human logic is not the way to find God, nor to figure God out. Faith is the way to find God. And faith, even when the Bible seems to teach two seemingly contradictory truths alongside of each other. And when it comes to the gospel, this is precisely what we discover. On the one hand, we learn that we are utterly helpless in and of ourselves to influence God to love us and save us. Salvation is solely his call. In his own words, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now listen to the conclusion of his statement. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Wow, do you know that? There it is in the book, Romans 9, 14 through 16, but that's not preached in most churches today. Some read that and say, well, isn't that what I said? God's going to save whom he will, and there isn't anything in the world that I can do about it, so what's the use? You know, Paul doesn't say, so what's the use? Did he say that? No. That's an extrapolation that people take from such a statement from Paul. Paul said that God's salvation does not depend on man's desire and effort. That's a far cry 
from saying that men have no responsibility to respond aright to the message of the gospel when he or she hears it preached. That's one extreme. The other extreme is go off the deep end at the end of, uh, at a different end of the spectrum. They discount God's electing grace while giving a cursory agreement to it. They lay their great emphasis on doing everything in their power to posture themselves in some way as to influence God. They will pray more. They will attend church regularly. They will listen to preaching, read books, give money to the church, help on projects of the church. All with the idea that God will somehow be impressed with their fervor and choose to include them among his sheep. They explain salvation as entering an archway into heaven. I've heard this one. An archway into heaven. And over the door it says, whoever will come may come. And then looking back at the sign on heaven's side, it reads, chosen before the foundation of the world. Yet this too is not the gospel because it lays so much emphasis on doing and making right choices that the end product is the salvation which becomes a reward for smart men and women who learn to jump through the right hoops to influence God to choose them. It never dawns on them that such would be a salvation based on their own good choices. Not upon God's grace alone. Let me put it this way. Even good works nullifies grace. The good that you do, that even could be defined in Scripture as being good, nullifies grace if those are the things you're counting on for salvation. Jesus did not die to make men good manipulators of God, but to make sinners saints who become like God in their thinking and in their behavior. Now, as we ask the question, what about Jesus and me? We have to keep all of these things in mind. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. There is no such thing as influencing his decision. His choice is, after all, his choice And his choice is not influenced by partiality as though men have any credible morality or righteousness which would impress God. Nonetheless, at the same time, neither is God turned off by wicked sinners as though some people are beyond the reach of his mercy or out of reach, we might say of his grace you know we tend to catalog and categorize sins into major and minor but God simply says the soul that sins shall die major sins minor sins however you want to say it Roman Catholicism is bereft with this whole thing of 
you have major sins and minor sins. The soul that sins dies. That's what the Bible says. While we think of sinning as immorality, rape, murder, those barred from entering God's paradise in the book of Revelation, those standing on the outside among the immoral, are listed those who practice magic arts, that's the occult world, idolaters, I'm reading scripture, those that worship false gods, and everyone who loves and practices falsehoods or lies, Revelation 22.50. Wait a minute. You mean liars are listed with those that are immoral? Yes, they are. Oh, and if you turn to Revelation 21, verse 8, it adds, and I'm reading scripture, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile. Romans 3.28 adds greed, envy, deceit, malice, boastful, those disobedient to parents. Did I miss anybody? The scripture is very, very inclusive in terms of letting nobody off the hook. While we compare, we compare sins to exonerate ourselves, God simply says the wages of sin is death. Without specific mention of quantity of sin or type of sin. Sinning more does, make us, does not make us more a sinner than anyone else, and sinning less does not make us less a sinner and in need of God's grace. So, well, where are you getting that? Let me read it for you from the book of James. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point He is guilty of breaking all of it. There it is. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. James 2, verse 10. And his point is that no matter the law given, it comes from one and the same lawgiver who is God. So you cannot exonerate yourself by saying, I'm not an adulterer. What about the other laws of God? Are you a liar? Hmm. Have you ever been covetous of another man's possessions? Have you structured God as you want him to be and not as he reveals himself to be? Well, then you're an idolater. One infraction is enough to condemn you as a lawbreaker. Say, well, that's pretty strict. Yes, it is. And that's because God is perfectly holy. And you and I cannot match up to it. Think of a man on trial for assault. It would be ludicrous for such a defendant to offer as his defense. 
uh, judge, but I'm a good provider of my family. Uh, I'm faithful to my wife. I do not steal from my employer. I covet no man's silver or gold. I'm content with the things I have. Is this a defense for the prosecutor's assertion that this man assaulted another man with a bat and nearly beat him to death in the shop parking lot? What do these other good things, commendable as they might be, what do they have to do with exonerating him from an assault charge? And to put it personal, what do your many good deeds have to do with exonerating you from those times when you have grossly violated the law of God in so many other areas? James says, if you stumble at just one point, you're guilty. I'm guilty as well. We're all guilty, and that is exactly the problem. How do we get rid of the guilt without getting killed? God has a controversy with sinners... And we're all sinners. Wow. This is a big problem. This isn't little. This is monumental. This is heaven or hell. That's in the balance. So my question this morning is, what about Jesus and me? Personalize it. What about Jesus and you? case of Paul is quite revealing. Those of you who know Paul's history will know that he was not always the great apostle Paul. His own confession is given in our text. Verse 13. Here's his confession. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor, that is of God's people, And a violent man. Talk about a confession. A blasphemer, a persecutor of God's people, and a violent man. Not the kind of person we would want to be around. Just what the nature of his violence and persecution of others entailed, he explains to King Agrippa at his trial. He says... I was convinced, King Agrippa, that I ought to do all of this that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another synagogue to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Acts 26, verse 9 through 11. I think he's right calling it an obsession. How many people would do this? 
Boy, he is on a mission. And it was while on one of these witch hunts to Damascus that Christ the Lord stopped him dead in his tracks with a blinding light. You know the account. And he challenged Saul for his crimes against him. In his words, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what, has, what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I am sending you to open eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Acts 26, verse 16 and following. And our text, verse 12, says, that Christ appointed Paul to this service. He also says, I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy. Even though Paul's actions hurt the church of Christ, through his persecution, yes, through his violence, verse 13, he tells us the grace of the Lord was poured out upon him along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, verse 14. He didn't have either, you see, neither faith nor love for God. Now understand here that Paul is not taking credit for the way he turned out. He is saying that he had nothing to do with it. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's a description that he reiterates in verse 16. Now, that's not false humility. Oh, well, you know, I, I need to tell you that I was a big sinner. No, he was the worst sinner. We're reading inspired texts, are we not? That means that what's in the text is accurate, 100%. Paul did not invent this. He's not having a false Humility, so people will give him an ear. No, no. This is exactly the case. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He was the worst sinner. He killed Christians for sport. He opposed Christ at every turn. He tried to destroy the church of God. And he liked his job. He delighted in it, thinking he was doing God a great service to rid the world of Christians, not knowing. He mentions his ignorance, verse 13. Not knowing, not believing, also mentioned in verse 13, that the Christ was Jesus of Nazareth, God's son. Now, why would God do this? Why would he choose to save a man whose whole existence was to imprison, persecute, and kill the people of God? Verse 16 and following. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. 
What's he saying? Well, simply put, God saved me to show the rest of the world of sinners that if God is willing and able to save the worst of sinners, he's willing and able to save you. If God could be merciful to Paul, and he was, he can be merciful to you and to me and to whomever. Like Paul, your ignorance, your unbelief is no barrier to the grace of God. God can and does give faith and love for God in the grace he pours out upon us in Christ. Verse 14. We don't start with faith. We don't start with love for God. No, God takes the God-haters, the blasphemers, the violently opposed to him, And he appoints them into his service. Verse 12. Do you know these these people make the best ambassadors? They do. Because they know how much they owe. What happened to the Apostle Paul is not unique. In fact, every Christian in this room has come to faith in Christ in the same way. True. The circumstances are not identical. We're not all on a road heading to a different city to arrest Christians and prosecute them and then sign their death warrant. But we oppose God in unbelief. We oppose God in ignorance. We did do that. We thought we were okay with God and that we knew God and how to be a child of God, but we didn't know anything. Peter said to those in Jerusalem that day that their, ha- their hands had crucified Jesus. Let me read it for you. This, is, this must have been such a shocker to them. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though Pilate had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Now I know that you did this in ignorance, as did your leaders. Acts 3, verse 13 and following. Okay. Does ignorance exonerate us? Does it let us off the hook? No, a thousand times no, no, no. Peter goes on to say, repent then and turn to God so that the sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, then he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Acts 3 verse 19. Think about this. When you are arrested for going 60 miles an hour in a work zone and a road crew worker is hit by your car, try defending yourself by saying, I didn't know the speed limit was only 45. See if that works. The judge will say, sorry, ignorance is no defense. Guilty. $7,500 fine, 15 years in jail. 
Okay, what will the judge of the universe say to you who have sinned against his son Jesus through ignorance and unbelief? Well, I didn't know Jesus was your son. I wasn't convinced of his identity to believe in him. John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. What I want you to see is that this is all of us until God's grace finds us and changes us. This was Paul, the Christ killer, Christian killer. This is us, the Christ killer. It wasn't just the Jews who killed Christ. It was our sins that put him on that cross. If you've seen Mel Gibson's film on the Passion of Christ, he does a pretty accurate portrayal of the brutality of crucifixion. But the film does a poor job of demonstrating that it was our sin that made the cross necessary. As we watch the scenes in the movie of the torture of Jesus, many wept. Others were silent. It was emotionally draining. We were stunned, traumatized by what we saw. Appalled at the brutality, shocked that men could treat another person in that way. We empathize with Jesus and we weep for him. But you know what? God isn't asking for your sympathy. He is demanding your repentance. When Jesus was bearing his cross on the Via Della Rosa, the pathway of suffering, the, the roadway, Gibson's film did not include, it did not include the conversation Jesus had with the spectators. But I'll give it to you here. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. You can just see this whole picture. And Jesus turned to them and he said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that have never borne, the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Luke 23, verse 28. Wow, those are strange words. What can Jesus possibly mean? For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? When and why, we ask. John answers in Revelation 6, verse 12 and following. I watched and he, the Lamb, Christ, he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell on the earth 
The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Next verse. Every king, leader, rich man, poor, free man, slave, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Revelation 6, verse 12 and following. Jesus' point to these women is this. You will wish to God that you were not mothers on that day. You'll consider the barren woman to be the blessed woman. Not you. Spurgeon writes, if when fires are raging in the forest, the green trees full of sap and moisture crackle like stubble in the flame, how will the old dry trees burn, which are already rotten to the core and turned into torchwood, and so prepared as fuel for the furnace? If Jesus suffers who hath no sin, but is full of the life of innocence, and the sap of holiness, how will they suffer who have long since been dead in sin and are rotten with iniquity? Wow. End quote. Peter writes a similar thought when he says, It is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Oh, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey? The gospel of God. 1 Peter 4, 17. Brethren, it is not Jesus who needs our tears for his suffering. It is we who need to weep for ourselves if we are far from God. On that day you would cease from your doubts and fears and wanderings and tears, that that day would be yours today. Christ calls upon you not to weep for him, but to repent and be saved from the wrath to come. You will never find a more loving Savior willing to save and powerful enough to save. His cross is designed to wipe away all tears by taking your sorrow upon himself. His tears will wash away your sins for God has a people he intends to cleanse by the blood of Christ. A stand-in substitute. You know, when you and I weep, it's not always in repentance. Sometimes we weep in remorse for the consequences of sin that come our way because we did sin. In other words, we weep because we're hurting. These are tears of pity, self-pity. No such tears touch the heart of God. But when we weep in true repentance of sin, 
God has touched us with the reality of our need for his son as our savior. And Jesus gladly gives his grace, his saving grace to all who believe. This is the glorious hope of the gospel. It's the promise held out from Jesus to you and to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. John 6, verse 32. You may be rejecting Jesus, but he will never reject you. May this be the day that you come in repentance and faith. If you don't know his salvation, today's the day of salvation, Paul says. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the assurance of it. We're not in pie in the sky type of thing. We are being told that if we will repent of our sins and come to Christ alone for salvation, We'll be forgiven and cleansed. We'll be washed, cleansed, forgiven because the blood of Jesus covers us from all of our iniquity. Now we could die for our own sins. That's true. But it would take an eternity in hell to pay the price. Does that sound like salvation? Lord, we won't be saved if we're counting on ourselves. We'll be condemned and doomed and forever lost. We need a perfect sacrifice. And that's found only in you. The gracious God and Savior of his people. The perfect Savior. The man without sin. We need this last Adam to eradicate the sin of the first Adam. We've inherited Adam's old sinful nature. We live like him, think like him, do like him. But the last Adam, this scripture calls the Christ the last Adam. He did what Adam in Eden never did. He brings salvation to those whom he represents. I pray that you are representing us all today. But if not, that today you will find us and draw us effectually into your kingdom for your glory and our good. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, the Red Hymnal. Four, six, seven. Let's stand as we sing. Four, six, seven.
We'll take a 10-minute break and then resume when you hear the music for our communion service, after which time we have a luncheon prepared for downstairs. So 10-minute break for right now. And then when you hear the music, come back in here and we'll have our communion service and then resume later for dinner. We are dismissed.